0: please join me in praying. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your generosity and your goodness and for this parable that Jesus taught us. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach, that I would be true and clear, that your spirit would open our hearts to understand your truth, and in the words of the psalm, that we, your people, would feast on the abundance of your house. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So a number of years ago, our church was um, very strongly connected to the Anglican Church in Rwanda. Um, it was part of the Reformation that led to the new Anglican Church in North America. And in one of the visits, probably about eight or nine years ago, a man named uh, Bishop Jeffrey came to visit us. Maybe some of you remember him. Jeffrey uh, Rubru-Sisi was his name from the Diocese of Chiangugu. I'm not kidding on those names. <laughs> um, Bishop Jeffrey was an awesome man, and he had done incredible work with youth. You know, in the genocide of Rwanda, oftentimes there were huge numbers of children that were raising themselves, and Bishop Jeffrey and his church stepped into that gap, and he started putting together these youth camps. And at one point, he said, I want you to come to Africa and speak to the youth camps, Uh, something I never did. But the invitation stuck with me because I said, Bishop Jeffrey, what could I possibly say to the children of genocide? They've gone through so much, and I don't even know what I would say to them. And he said, he had heard my testimony, and he said, Well, you were an engineer and you walked away from that to become a pastor. You could tell them about being satisfied in the Lord. You could tell them that if they aspire to a certain level of affluence or career, it won't ultimately satisfy them. And it left a real mark on me. I've not forgotten that since then. You see, one of the, I guess, one of the benefits of living in an affluent Western society is that we have a lot more opportunities to not be satisfied, right? We try lots of different things and we, and we find that none of them satisfy us because we're only satisfied in the Lord. And so it begs the question of what is the, what is the proper attitude towards stuff in general? What does it look like to understand how to receive God's blessings and not let our identity be messed up with that? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the combination between God's, God's generosity, God's blessings to us, and our identity. And my main point is this, that God's generous and it's meant to be contagious. Now last week, my friend, my friend David Drake preached to us, and he preached on the story from Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy if I wanted to summarize it, I could say he, he spoke about man's generosity in the early church and then God's judgment against hypocrisy. This week, we have almost the opposite. Through the parable we just heard, we see God's generosity and then man's judgment against his goodness. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 20. It's, uh, I believe it's page 825 in the Pew Bible, and we're going to take a look at this parable it's called in the ESV heading, it's called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I really like this parable. It took me a little while to get my head wrapped around it this week, studying it yet again, because there are so many things it, it addresses. But the basic parable goes like this. There is a master of a house who is in charge of a vineyard, and it's harvest time. And so he hires people to go out, seasonal laborers, and bring in the grapes, bring in the harvest. And he negotiates with them in the morning. A day's wage was a denarius, standard, everyone would have been pleased with that, it was the standard pay for that work. And he sends them out at the first hour. They counted the days of harvest, much like those of you that work in the hospital, 12 hour shifts, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., sunrise to sunset. And they were paid a denarius. Well, the third hour, which would have been 9 o'clock, he goes out and finds some more people and hires them because there's so much work. And he says, I will pay you what is right. And that's an interesting statement, actually, in this parable because he pays them far more than what is right. He generously pays them. But I I will pay you what is right. And they presume that will be prorated based on a denarius. He does it again at noon and then at 3. And then he does it again at 5 p.m. There's one hour left in the day he sends them out into the field. And then it's interesting, it says, um, in verse 8, it says, the owner of the vineyard. So the owner now, this isn't somebody else just being generous with other people's stuff. The owner says to the foreman, I want you to pay them all, starting with the ones that were hired last until the first, and pay them all a day's wage, a denarius. So, of course, he starts giving the people that worked one hour a full day's wage, and the people that worked three hours, and six hours, and nine hours, until the, the first group, they all get a day's wage. Now, of course, the ones that worked the whole day expected to be paid more. But let me pause there for a second and ask you this question How would you have responded if you were that person that worked 12 hours? Would you have been happy for the others, or would you have felt cheated in some way? Like, you got shorted because somebody else was blessed. Now, maybe I'm describing a situation in your life where you had the the green-eyed monster of envy because somebody else was getting something good, and you weren't in that moment getting that. You know, we sometimes talk about others prospering as it's it's like they're living a charmed life, like some kind of special favors on them. It always goes well for them. They always seem to end up on top, and I never do. And there's kind of a victim mindset that can creep in. I wonder if you have embraced such a mindset or if you're more of the abundance kind of mindset. In verse 11 and 12, it says, the complaint says, you have made them equal to us. Now, this is getting into identity. It's not just, I wish I had some of that generosity too. Can you send some of it my way? It's, you've made them equal to us. There's real envy there. Now, do you know the difference between envy and coveting? It's a a subtle thing, but coveting is dealing with what we have or don't have. We want something. I want that too would be the statement of coveting. Envy is far more wicked. Envy is about who we are. I want to be better than you. That's what envy says. I want to be here and you here. So I want in some way, to not only increase, but I want you to diminish, because it's about my being. I need to feel higher. I need to feel better. I came across a poem by Victor Hugo that's awesome and awful at the same time, and it's called... Envy and Avarice, Avarice being the old-timey word for greed, Envy and Avarice, these, it's about seven stanzas long, so I'm not going to give you the whole thing, I'm just going to come to the last stanza, but it's about two sisters called Envy and Avarice, and they're going along the road and they're, you know, bantering with each other, and they come along some kind of a, a divine being whose name is Desire, and Desire says to them, I will give you whatever you want, but the first one to ask, you will get it, and your sister will get a double portion of it. And this scenario causes them to debate long on the road in this poem, so much so that desire becomes frustrated and is going to leave them. And this leads us to the last stanza, and let me just read it for you. Envy's the one who speaks. Envy at last the silence broke, and smiling with malignant sneer upon her sister dear, who stood in expectation by, ever implacable and cruel spoke, I would be blinded of one eye that's envy. I want you to hurt. Not just, I want what you have, which would be coveting. I actually want to be better than you. I want to put you down in some way. You have made them equal to us, who've borne the burden of the day. It's creeping into something that is far more difficult than just, I want that too. They've previously felt very privileged, all day long, been working, thinking, wow, I'm going to make a denarius. I'm going to bring home pay. I'm proud that I was chosen first. I have the privilege to work. It was a good day and things were going well until they saw this generosity. And all of a sudden, they felt slighted and less than valuable. And in verse 15, now keep in mind, this is a parable. This didn't literally happen, but it happens in so many ways all the time. In 15, the owner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? If you look at the footnote, the the Greek is actually, more specifically, it's about having an evil eye. Or do you have an evil eye because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? That's literally how it's rendered in the Greek. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, the first and the last bit gives us kind of a bookend on it. So in verse 19, or 16, it says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. But if you go to the last verse of the prior chapter, it says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, what had come in the context right before this is an interaction with Peter. And Peter is wrestling maybe with some envy, which is why Jesus told this parable. You see, a young rich man had come to Jesus and wanted to be perfect, and Jesus challenged him on the commandments and then finally said, if you'd be perfect, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then follow me, right? And he goes away very sad. We all know this story, or many of us do. And he goes away very sad because he was rich. And then Jesus says, it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, then who can be saved? recognizing that in many ways they were rich too. Who then can be saved if it's so hard for the wealthy to get into the kingdom of heaven? And he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter says, Lord, what about us? We've given everything to follow you. What do we get? Right? That's, that's when this, this comparison starts creeping in. And Jesus does acknowledge, he says, I say to you truly, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, Jesus is hoping that Peter and the apostles will pick up a heart of generosity, that they will not be worried about position so much as excited about the kingdom of heaven. Many will come into the kingdom of heaven in the coming, now we know, millennia, but then it was maybe years. They didn't know how long it would be before Christ returned. Many are coming in, and we will all share in this incredible, generous household of God. Now, there's some faulty thinking here. One of the faulty thoughts is that being rich automatically equals God's approval. This was more prevalent in those days, and the converse was thought as well that being poor meant you had God's disapproval, that you were under some kind of a punishment, and Jesus totally upended that. So, first of all, he saw being rich as a bigger hindrance to coming into the kingdom of God, and he identified with the poor, and he constantly blessed the poor, and he changed that. Another faulty thought here is that getting past materialism, like Peter implied they had done, getting past materialism would make your heart right. And it doesn't necessarily. Just because he's not stumbling over money, let's say, he's wrestling with envy and identity issues. I want to be more important than others. I want a special place. The apostles were struggling with this. Now, what does the parable show us on the positive side, right? Dealing with covetousness, coveting and envy and all this is not comfortable. What's really good about it? Well, one, we see that God is beyond fair. He's beyond fair. He's generous. He's a generous God. He's giving out so much to these people in the parable that we ought to celebrate that. He's a good Lord to work for. You see, envy is self-destructive in a way, right? Just like the poem, what, what did you get? Well, you're blind in one eye and your sister's blind in both. Why? Nothing good came out of that. It's because envy can be self-destructive. I would rather bring the other person down than just worry about my own stuff. And so what we see here is a generous person, a generous owner in the harvest. The people that complain ought to be careful. You know, we're going to be harvesting again tomorrow. Maybe I won't pick you at all, right? They should be thinking, what a generous God. I don't want to mess, or a landlord, I don't want to mess with that. This is a good guy to work for. Notice too that he's patient. In verse 13, he calls him friend. Friend, have I not done right by you? take what's yours and go home. Be pleased with it. You made a fair, day, fair day's wage. Why are you begrudging me? He doesn't get angry. He just simply calls him friend, which is kind of kind. He also is a compassionate person. You know, in those days, those people that were waiting in those labor pools had no other income. They were going home to great disappointment They were not going to feed their family that day. Their wife and children were going to be disappointed. They waited all the way until the 11th hour in the hopes that they could find some work to do to bring something home, a stale piece of bread, whatever. And in the parable, this owner sees that, and he has compassion on them. And so he's generous. He's giving basically alms, but he's doing it by providing a little bit of work for them and then paying them for a whole day so they can go home and care for their family. He's a compassionate God. Jesus is showing us all this. The Bible talks a lot about it, about having such compassion, especially for those in need. I particularly like Proverbs nineteen seventeen, where it says, He who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay. Now, Jesus was the most deserving person of all, the wealthiest of all. He had it all. He was at his Father's side for all eternity. He created all things. All things were made through him and for him. He's all in all, as the scriptures say. And yet, he made himself last. He emptied himself of all that glory. He left his father's side in obedience. He came humbly, born into a working-class family in the Middle East. He served. He bore our iniquities. He carried our burdens. He was a man of many sorrows. He did all of this, becoming the friend of sinners. He did it to win others. He was, he, in the New Testament, he's called, we're called co-heirs of Christ, He's going to share his glory and all the abundance with us. That's who he is. Now, Peter, like, like us, wants special favor, but Jesus wants us to think about others. You see, I think God's generosity to us is meant to go through us. It's not supposed to stop with us. His blessings are so we can be a blessing. God's generosity to us is meant to go through us, And I wonder, do we actually believe what it says in Acts 20, 35, that it is, in fact, more blessed to give than to receive? That's something that could be tested. You know, you could start giving stuff and see, do I feel more blessed when I give stuff or when I get stuff? How much has God, in fact, given me? I asked you, as a call to worship, to come into God's house counting your blessings. Come into God's presence and be thinking about all the ways he has, in fact, blessed you. And what you could do with that would be the second part. Now, here's a couple of application points. First of all, be thankful that we serve such a generous God. So when he says to Peter and the others, those who've sacrificed for me will receive a hundredfold more, serving a generous God, even if in this whatever situation your moment, your moment puts you in, even if in that moment right there you're not getting the generosity, there's a pretty good chance because of who God is, in the next one or the next one, you will get it. And in the end, there's a promise that you will. A hundredfold is what it says here. So be thankful we serve such a generous God. Better yet, celebrate when others are blessed. Celebrate for them and say, bless you, God, that you're helping that person over there. Jesus raised that up so much so that he said, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, he wanted us to really bless everybody. He wanted us to be generous like he's generous And when someone else is experiencing that, you're actually seeing God's hand at work in the world. Praise God for that. Let's strive to be the kind of people that can celebrate another person's blessing because we know that it's God doing it. And then finally, and I would say this is even better, so be thankful. Better yet, celebrate for others. And then finally, cultivate generosity like God's. Cultivate it. The saying is true that you can't outgive God. Look for ways to bless others. Begin to practice this. It can start with very small things, but you can't, you can't outgive God. He's so generous. This is just who we serve. He's that kind of a God. And He wants us to pick up that generosity and share it liberally with others. There are so many other places in the scriptures that talk about this. But just simply looking at the example of Jesus who emptied himself and came to serve us while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, shows us what kind of a God he is, and it wins our hearts. We realize how much we've received in Christ, so we have all things, and we can give all things freely. I want to encourage you, as we are in this fourth quarter of the year, to sit down and and count your blessings, literally count them, like on a piece of paper, take account of what God has entrusted to you. And then go through that annual exercise we as a church always do, which is to pray through those things and say, God, how can I learn to be generous? What would you have me do in this coming year with what you've entrusted to my care? And let's see what God does. Let's see how his kingdom comes as we begin to be more and more generous. My guess is he'll give you even more to give to others you will become a bigger and bigger channel of his blessing into the world. I think that's actually what he wants to do. And I think it's small thinking on our part that keeps that work small. Open up. Open hands, not closed hands. Let God bless others through you. And not just materially, in other ways as well. In every way. And let's now pray for this. Lord, this morning, this parable is stepping on a major idol in our lives, in our culture the idol of money and possessions. We bless you for being so generous, and we thank you for it. We ask you to give us grateful hearts for that. Would you come and heal us in our identity as well as in our generosity? For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.